and welcome to Gray Matters, the weekly media analysis, current events, and etc. program. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be doing a solo program tonight. Well, Mr. Dick Whaley enjoys uh, some nice time with his family, and those of us who remain in town enjoy the relatively subdued extra room that we have to uh, move around in. So a lot of folks out of town for the holiday break. Of course, today is Boxing Day, a phrase that really only has uh, much traffic in uh, Canada and the uh, British Commonwealth. It's an old English tradition that the upper classes would, uh, the day after Christmas, sort of sort of share the wealth by uh, boxing up their old things in the boxes that they emptied from Christmas Day with presents that they had received and give their things from the previous year on down to the working class, the servants and so forth. So reusing those same boxes, you box it up and give it to the servants. And so it's a kind of a day after Christmas gift down the class ladder. And so, as in a, of course, growing up in America, I always thought Boxing Day, well, gee, that's the day that you take your boxes back to the store and uh, return for a refund or an exchange gifts which you received on Christmas. Made that mistake once of going to Myers the day after Christmas and realized that it was something like the fifth or sixth ring of Dante's Inferno. The uh, degree of hostility and frustration on the uh, part of folks forced to work that day and people trying to return stuff and go on about their business. Not fun. So hopefully your Christmas holiday was good. Hanukkah, of course, is still, I believe, underway, maybe a day or two left in Hanukkah. And of course, we wrap up this year in a few more days, 2011, nearly done with. And so, uh, Next time Gray Matters takes the air, Dick Whaley will be returned. It will be January the 2nd, 2012. And, of course, uh, it seems like every few months there's a new apocalypse uh, evangelist who's out there. And 2012 was said, I think, on the Mayan calendar to be the last year. But then I think people misinterpreted that. That's just where they're counting system sopped and i believe it it actually goes back and starts over again of course any number that you assign a year is utterly random and arbitrary like most signs and signifiers and in fact uh, tells you more about the culture group that generated the number than any actual i mean the universe is without number right there is no fixed starting point uh, certainly from a human perspective so I think it's uh, rather silly to assume that uh, the Mayans had it all figured out and that the world will end in 2012. Highly unlikely. After all, the Mayans were wrong about the Spaniards, so why should they be right about 2012? Anyway, uh, I'm sort of going to de-emphasize the uh, week in review of news uh, aspect of the program this week and feature uh, a short essay by uh, Jonathan Shell, And then I'm going to go actually to a recording of one of my favorite uh, writers, Karen Armstrong. And uh, 
I'm going to sort of uh, briefly touch on a few other things. Uh, it is interesting to note that uh, on the 13th of December, the Financial Times reported that uh, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad of Iran had a shoe thrown at him. He was speaking to a group of laborers, uh, one of whom unfurled a banner which proclaimed, we have not been paid for 17 months and threw a shoe, which, of course, famously happened to uh, W in Iraq. And I think there's not enough shoes to throw at either of these two knuckleheads. So uh, while it's generally rude to throw shoes, I think the targeting question here uh, merits the particular gesture. Um and so uh, just worth uh, sort of a humorous note there. Um, I also wanted to touch briefly on an article that appeared in the December 12th Financial Times, a uh, article about unemployment and a small little sidebar piece of that article which uh, I did not save the bulk of the article, so I don't have the author's name, unfortunately, but this appeared in the December 12th edition of the Financial Times. Case study, Michigan. How many electricians does it take to change a light bulb? None. They are too busy emptying your bedpan. That may sound far-fetched, but in Michigan, where hundreds of thousands of mid-career men have lost their jobs in the car plants, Nursing is one of the few alternatives on offer. Healthcare provides the state with by far the largest and fastest growing source of new jobs, as it does for America as a whole. Men still account for less than one-tenth of the intake for nursing schools, but that is a much larger proportion than a few years ago. Some talk about the feminization of the U.S. workplace. This might also be dubbed the age of rethinking a point to which I will return repeatedly in the program today. Quote, My friends taunted me all the time after I said I was going to be a nurse, says Kenneth Swint, a 44-year-old electrician who used to work at General Motors. The teasing had no impact on him. Quote, Those jobs, you know, where you didn't have to work very hard and you earned a hundred grand a year have gone for good. Close quote, he tells his friends. Continuing, Kenneth Swint, former electrician, says, Now, if that's your preference, you can sit around and wait for the tooth fairy to visit, or you can wise up. Uh, It's very hard for most men, uh, says Mr. Swent, who, as an African-American male, comes from a group that has faced acute problems making the transition. Uh, Quote, they get hung up over this pride and dignity thing. Close quote. The decision came to Mr. Swent after his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. There was nothing he could say to console her. Quote, I was helpless to do anything about it. Close quote. Then he observed how effectively the nurses lifted her spirits. The prognosis turned out to have been too bleak, and she is now in remission. Swint went into nursing because he wanted to help people who had, quote, fallen by the wayside. If every former electrician thought like Mr. Swint, the Midwest could be turning the corner. But he is in the minority. Since 2008, U.S. employers have compiled a growing difficulty in finding qualified applicants. Somehow the market signals are not working. Mr. Swint says too many of his friends still hang around at home not knowing what to do with their lives. Quote, we are still going to need electricians, but a lot of them are going to have PhDs. And uh, that's 
really food for thought. And this rethinking idea is something that Dick and I have been speaking about for months, that the current economic malaise, the uh, sort of dead end that the oil-based economy has sort of led us into, the foolish, uh, seemingly endless wastefulness in military spending, it's really time for America to sort of rethink what kind of a country are we, what kind of country do we want to be, what kind of jobs do we want our children to have and to look forward to and to prepare for. And it seems to me that uh, if nursing is, in fact, um, one of the fastest and largest growing source of new jobs, and we've got so much money to pour into foolish, foolish military adventurism, as is evidenced by the recently concluded, quote-unquote, Iraq War, that if you stop and think about it, there must be enough money in the American economy to pay each other to help take care of each other. Wow. What a great concept. Uh, Education, for example, has suffered cut after cut after cut. Here locally, Ann Arbor Public Schools are looking to cut $14 million from next year's uh, allotted spending. And, of course, uh, rather ridiculously, uh, administrators at Ann Arbor Public Schools have recently been given substantial raises, 7 to 12% raises uh, these individuals uh, have been given, uh, while teachers a few years back took a 2% pay cut to avoid layoffs for their fellow teachers. Uh, the district spent the money on increasing the salary of the incoming superintendent, which seems absurd when uh, now programs that actually affect students are being cut. So nursing, teaching, child care, and the constant need that we uh, face for uh, infrastructure, uh, changes, improvements, uh, the roads uh, we've seen in this area, the uh, fire stations close, the uh, cutbacks in the police department, and uh, yet there seems to be ample money for other less helpful projects. Uh, I know that some on the right and those uh, people in the teabag movement who don't like to think but who simply like to be angry and uh, turn their uh, hatreds into a sort of a strange political ideology based simply on attitude rather than actuality, uh, might call such an approach socialism. Well, call it what you like, but uh, there are good jobs, uh, and it's a valuable uh, thing to help people, to teach people, to make the roads safe. Why not pay each other to help each other? I think that is one of the best things that uh, we as Americans can could imagine for a possible future. Well, speaking of possible futures, uh, I'm going to shift now to Jonathan Shell's essay, Cruel America, which appeared in the December 17th, uh, 2011 issue of The Nation magazine. And it's not often that I read an entire article. Certainly there's not time when uh, Dick and I are both sort of dialoguing and playing off of each other's comments and uh, clippings for the week. But this is a, uh, a very thought-provoking piece by, uh, I'll call him one of America's best moral political commentators. Jonathan Shell has written a number of uh, important 
books, lengthy essays about the nuclear freeze movement, about uh, the Reagan era in politics, and um, so forth. I'm looking for the title of one of those. Uh, Seventh Decade, New Shape of Nuclear Danger, one of his books. And, of course, he is uh, a longtime commentator on nuclear weapons issues. But uh, this piece is entitled Cruel America. I'll just share this with you. Presidential campaign debates are designed to give the candidates an opportunity to express themselves to voters. But the audiences, too, sometimes make their views known. That happened in the Republican debates on September 7th and 12th in two episodes that have been much noticed. On the 7th, NBC's Brian Williams asked Texas Governor Rick Perry whether at any time while presiding over the executions of the 234 people who had suffered the death penalty under his governorship, it has now risen to 235, he had, quote, struggled to sleep at night with the idea that any one of those might have been innocent. Perry had slept fine. Texas, he said, has a very thoughtful judicial system. Then he went on to issue a kind of threat. He said, quote, if you come into our state and you kill one of our citizens, you will be executed. Close quote. The crowd applauded enthusiastically. Williams, evidently taken aback by the demonstration, followed up by asking Perry what he had made of the fact that his response had drawn applause. The governor was undisturbed and he repeated his threat. Quote, our citizens have made it clear and they don't want you to commit those crimes against our citizens. And if you do, you will face the ultimate justice. Close quote. That these were not the only possible sentiments regarding executions was made clear soon afterward. A mass movement, not only in the United States, but in countries around the world, arose to oppose, unsuccessfully, the execution in Georgia of Troy Davis, whose conviction for murder 22 years ago had been thrown into doubt by new evidence, including the recantation of seven of nine witnesses. A petition signed by more than 600,000 people was presented to the Georgia Parole Board, which led which let the execution go forward. At the GOP debate on the 12th, there was another public expression of enthusiasm for loss of life in Texas. CNN's Wolf Blitzer asked Texas Congressman Ron Paul, who favors repeal of President Obama's health plan, what medical response he would recommend if a young man who had decided not to buy health insurance were to go into a coma. Ron Paul answered, quote, that's what freedom is all about, taking your own risks. Close quote. He seemed to be saying that if the young man died, that was his problem. There were cheers from the crowd. Blitzer pressed on, quote, but Congressman, are you saying that society should just let him die? Someone in the audience shouted, yeah, and the crowd roared in approval. A characteristic that these exchanges have in common is cruelty. Cruelty is a close cousin to injustice, yet it is different. Injustice and its opposite, justice, perhaps the most commonly used standards for judging the health of the body politic, are political criteria par excellence and apply above all to systems and their institutions. Cruelty and its opposites, kindness, compassion, and decency, are more personal. They are apolitical qualities that nevertheless have political consequences. A country's sense of decency stands outside and above its politics, checking and setting limits on abuses. An unjust society must reform its laws and institutions. A cruel society must reform itself. There have been many signs recently that the United States has been traveling down a steepening path of cruelty. It's hard to say why such a thing is occurring, but it seems to have to do with a steadily growing faith in force 
as the solution to almost any problem, whether at home or abroad. Enthusiasm for killing is an unmistakable symptom of cruelty. It also appeared after the killing of Osama bin Laden, which touched off raucous celebrations around the country. It is one thing to believe in the unfortunate necessity of killing someone, another to revel in it. This is especially disturbing when it is not only government officials, but ordinary people who engage in the effusions. In any descent into barbarism, one can make out two stages. First, the evils are inaugurated, tested as it were. Second, the reaction comes, either indignation and rejection, or else acceptance, even delight. The choice can indicate the difference between a country that is restoring decency and one that is sinking into a nightmare. It was a dark day for the United States when the Bush administration secretly ordered the torture of terrorism suspects. On that day, the civilization of the United States dropped down a notch. But it sank a notch lower when, the facts of the crime having been known, former President Bush and former Vice President Cheney publicly embraced their wrongdoing as they have done most recently on their respective book tours. To the impunity they already enjoyed, they added brazenness, as if challenging society to respond or else enter into tacit complicity with the abuses. And still there was little reaction. For in a further downward drop, President Obama, even as he ordered an end to torture, decided against imposing any legal accountability on the miscreants, and in fact shunned any accountability whatsoever. He did not even seek, say, some equivalent of the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa after the end of apartheid. There are many other signs that the downward path is well-traveled. Our criminal justice system reeks of cruelty. The death penalty defies standards of decency accepted by all civilized countries. The incarceration of more than 2 million Americans, the highest proportion per capita in the world, is a frightening reflection on a country that seems to know of no remedy for social ills but punishment. The conditions of incarceration are fearful. Atul Gawande of The New Yorker has provided a horrifying account of the spread within the justice system of extreme isolation techniques that, many believe, amount to torture. Prisoners can be held in solitary confinement for years in small, windowless cells in which they are kept for 23 hours of every day. Many prisoners, as well as Senator John McCain, who was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam, have reported that such isolation is more agonizing and destructive than physical torture. Quote, it crushes your spirit and weakens your resistance more effectively than any other form of mistreatment, McCain has said. In many cases, solitary confinement leads to mental disintegration. An article in the Journal of American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law states that, quote, solitary confinement can be as clinically depressing as physical torture. The difference between jail and solitary may be greater than the difference between freedom and jail, Yet this punishment can be imposed merely administratively by wardens. In 2010, more than 25,000 inmates were being held in these conditions. One of them, confined not in the regular prison system but in military facilities, is Bradley Manning, the 23-year-old private first class suspected of leaking documents to WikiLeaks. Though a model prisoner, he was held for a year as a maximum custody... And now I flip the page. Detainee 
whereby he was subject to the 23-hour rule, barred from exercising, kept under perpetual surveillance, and for a while kept naked. At the time, he had not even been charged with a crime. Gawande draws a connection between the abuse of Americans at home and the torture of foreign suspects in the so-called War on Terror. Quote, with little concern or demural, he writes, we have consigned tens of thousands of our own citizens to conditions that horrified our highest court a century ago. Our willingness to discard these standards for American prisoners made it easy to discard the Geneva Conventions prohibiting similar treatment of foreign prisoners of war. Close quote. We might also draw a connection between these abuses and the current direction of budgetary decisions, in which, as in the readiness to deny health care to the dying, a pitiless will to deprive suffering people of whatever aid they may be receiving is evident. The list of cuts achieved or proposed on the right-wing agenda is too long to recite, but recent examples include the astonishing obstruction of assistance to recent victims of Hurricane Irene and Tropical Storm Lee unless other programs are cut. Opposition to extending unemployment benefits, defeat of the DREAM Act, which would give immigrant children a path to citizenship. Opposition to spending for the state children's health insurance program, as well as Head Start, and so on. It appears that no one is so unfortunate that he or she is exempt from spending cuts, while at the same time, no one is so fortunate as to be ineligible for a tax cut. Budget decisions do not involve the death penalty, yet... For many, they are matters of life and death. The cruelty of a society cannot be quantified any more than it, its reserves of decency can, nor can either be legislated, though both can be manifested in legislation. For all that, there can be no doubt that basic decisions are silently made in the hearts and minds of millions that are prior to any laws, and probably more important. If they go one way, a movement of hundreds of thousands suddenly arises, seemingly out of nowhere, to protest a wrongful execution. When they go the other way, you wake up one day to hear, with a chill running down your spine, a room full of people cheering because several hundred of their fellow citizens have been killed. Jonathan Schell and his essay, Cruel America, The Nation Magazine, December 11th. Night, uh, 2011. I'm going to go now to a short talk by Karen Armstrong, noted religious historian who's published a number of books, excellent scholar, a very good prose stylist as historians go to, I might add, um, a former Roman Catholic nun who quit the convent to further um, immerse herself in her studies. Uh, against the wishes of her mother superior. Uh, it's a long story, but a separate one. Uh, and she's speaking here, and this is, of course, available, many other short uh, clips from her, on the very interesting website TED Talks. And I'm going to play you her piece entitled, Let's Revive the Golden Rule. And uh, I think it's certainly a nice follow-up to Jonathan Shell's piece on cruelty in American culture, and certainly uh, as we shift from one year, 2011, to the next, 2012, certainly worth contemplating. And so let's hear Karen Armstrong. Let's revive the golden rule.
for years, I've been feeling frustrated because as a religious historian, I've become acutely aware that of the centrality of compassion in all the major world faiths. Every single one of them has evolved their own version of what's been called the golden rule. Sometimes it comes in a positive version. Always treat all others as you'd like to be treated yourself. And equally important is the negative version. Don't do to others what you would not like them to do to you. Look into your own heart, discover what it is that gives you pain, and then refuse under any circumstance whatsoever to inflict that pain on anybody else. And people have uh, emphasized the importance of compassion, not just because it sounds good, but because it works. People have found that when they have implemented the golden rule, as Confucius said, all day and every day, not just a question of doing your good deed for the day and then returning to a life of greed and uh, egotism, uh, but to do it all day and every day, you dethrone yourself from the center of your world, put another there, and you transcend yourself. Uh, and it brings you into the presence of what's being called God, Nirvana, Brahman, Tao. Uh, something that goes beyond what we know in our ego-bound existence. But you know, you'd never know it a lot of the time that this was so central to the religious life. Because with a few uh, wonderful exceptions, very often when religious people come together, religious leaders come together, they're arguing about abstruse doctrines uh, or uttering a counsel of hatred or inveighing against uh, homosexuality or something of that sort. Often people don't really want to be compassionate. Uh, I sometimes see when I'm speaking to a, a congregation of religious people, a sort of mutinous expression crossing their faces because people often want to be right instead. Um, and that, that, of course, defeats the object of the exercise. Now, why was I so grateful to Ted? Because um, because it, they took me very gently uh, from my bookline study and brought me into the 21st century, enabling me to speak to a much, much wider audience than I could have ever conceived. Because I feel an urgency about this. If we don't manage to implement the golden rule globally, so that we treat all peoples, wherever and whoever they may be, as though they were as important as ourselves, I doubt that we'll have a viable world to hand on to the next generation. The task of our time, one of the great tasks of our time, is to build a global society, as I said, that where people can live together in peace. And the religions uh, that should be making a major contribution are instead seen as part of the problem. Uh, and, of course, uh, it's not just uh, religious people who believe in the golden rule. This is the source of all morality, this imaginative act of empathy, putting yourself in the place of another. And so we have a choice, it seems to me. We can either go on uh, bringing out or emphasizing the dogmatic and intolerant aspects of our faith, or we can um, go back to 
the rabbis, Rabbi Hillel, uh, the older contemporary of Jesus, who when asked by a pagan uh, to uh, sum up the whole of Jewish teaching while he stood on one leg, said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the Torah and everything else is only commentary. Um, and the rabbis and the early fathers of the church who said that any interpretation of scripture that bred hatred and disdain was illegitimate. Uh, we need to revive that spirit. And it's not just going to happen because a spirit of love wafts us down. We have to make this happen and we can do it with the modern communications that Ted has introduced. Already, I've been tremendously heartened at the response of all our partners. In Singapore, uh, we have uh, the, uh, a group are use, going to use the charter to heal divisions recently uh, that have sprung up in Singaporean society, and some members of the parliament want to implement it uh, politically. Uh, in Malaysia, there's, uh, there's going to be an art exhibition in which leading artists are going to, to be taking uh, people, young people and showing them that, that compassion also lies at the root of all art. In, uh, throughout Europe, uh, the Muslim communities are holding events and discussions uh, discussing the centrality of compassion in Islam and in all faiths. But it can't stop there, it can't stop with the launch. Religious teaching, this is where we've gone so wrong, concentrating solely on believing abstruse doctrines. Religious teaching must be always lead to action. And uh, I intend to work on this till my dying day. And um, I, I, I want to continue with our partners uh, to uh, do two things, educate uh, and, in, uh, and stimulate compassionate thinking. Education, because people, we've so uh, dropped out of compassion, people often think it simply means feeling sorry for somebody. But of course you don't understand compassion if you're just going to think about it. You also have to do it. I want them to get the media involved because the media are crucial in helping to dissolve some of the stereotypical views we have of other people which are dividing us from one another. Uh, same applies uh, to educators. I'd like youth to get uh, a sense of the dynamism, the dynamic and challenge of a compassionate lifestyle and also see that it demands acute intelligence, not just a gooey feeling. Um, I'd like to call upon scholars to explore the compassionate uh, theme in the, their own and in other people's traditions. And perhaps above all, to encourage a sensitivity about uncompassionate speaking. So that because people have this charter, whether, whatever their beliefs or lack of them, they feel empowered to challenge uncompassionate speech disdainful remarks from their religious leaders, their political leaders, from the captains of industry. Uh, because we can change the world. We have the ability. Uh, I, I would never have thought of putting the charter online. I was still stuck in the old world of a whole bunch of boffins sitting together in a room and issuing yet another arcane statement. 
And Ted uh, introduced me to a whole new way of thinking and presenting ideas, because that's what is so wonderful about Ted. In this room, uh, uh, all this expertise, uh, uh, if we joined it all together, we can change the world. And of course, the problems are in super, uh, sometimes seem insuperable.